Uh, what uh, this is a, a lot of interesting uh, lines in your book. I learned so much from it. Uh, what did you mean by Haiti is a talisman for Caribbean thought and criticism? Oh, you know, <laughs> so so many Caribbean writers and um, thinkers, philosophers, have turned to Haiti uh, to to begin to think through the the you know the state. <clears throat> the state of existence uh, in the Caribbean. Haiti, uh, many will say, like, was the first, was the sort of, uh, you know, the canary in the coal mine, right, to face uh, uh, isolation, to, to face embargoes, to face indebtedness, to, to face uh, foreign, you know, interference in their, in their um, so attempt at a sovereign state, you know, because the Haitian Revolution brought them to that, cusp first they they're the sort of um the ones out there in front and other caribbean states other caribbean um colonies uh, and territories look towards haiti in that regard and sort of compare themselves and think about what what haiti has gone through um so in that sense it's an important talisman for thought secondly though it's just the also the cultural um resonance and influence of haiti the the degree to which Haiti was able to um, create a culture that is grounded in um, voodoo and in, like you said, laku and in, you know, family and land and spirituality um, and collective kind of consciousness. And that all then was expressed in um, Haitian culture and music and art and writing. That makes it a sort of talisman also. Uh, these are cartographies of power i love that that, that term, uh, phrase how do we how do we challenge or escape these i guess mobility regimes if you will uh you talk about things like decolonial reconstruction historical restitution regional cooperation can you flesh those out for us please yeah um so the the term cartographies of power actually um is not my own i have to say it it um, it comes from work um, in uh, Brit uh, British geographers, um, mm -hmm. Doreen Massey, as as well as um, uh, other sort of post-colonial geographers. But the, the you know the notion is is that we we're all sort of uh, related in a spatial sense, but also in a social sense, in an ecological sense, that there are these um, power relations that have constructed the worlds that we live in. Mm -hmm. And so cartographies of power is a way to sort of recognize um, that kind of relationality. And, and I'm sorry, I, f I missed the, I forgot the latter, the, some of the phrases you said in the latter so, part of your question. So, so, so the mobility, so would mobility regimes be like a, a subset of the cartographies of power would you yeah. yeah right and then you you mentioned as sort of solutions to 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 how to respond or to counter uh, these mo uh, you know these mobility regimes and you mentioned things like uh decolonial reconstruction and and you know like once disasters happen like instead of 
right. you know, these, these, these mobility regimes coming in and taking over everything and then sort of set up these demarcation lines between the people they're supposed to be helping and they create this, their own bubble, right? Exactly. Which, yeah. 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 So the, right. So the mobility regimes are um, the way to talk about how people who have more, uh, sort of social power, political power, um, cultural uh, influence, let's say, are able to uh, determine how they move. They have like a self-determination, a sort of um, mobility sovereignty, you could call it. And I also call it mobility capital. Yes. So someone like who, who is able to have access to a car and they can go on airplanes and they can rent a car and they have a uh, a smartphone and they have, you know, mobile, uh, international, um, Wi-Fi service, uh, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, mo mobile phone service. And those are all forms of mobility capital as are like so having like broad social networks and having time to, to, mm -hmm. to manage all those things. What we call the mobility poor are people who are are not necessarily lacking in mobility, but they lack self-determination of their own mobility. Mm -hmm. So they might face coerced mobility, forced mobility, um, un a dangerous and high-risk mobility, right? So they have to travel by means that are more dangerous, less comfortable, possibly illegal. Um, you know, think of people trying who, who don't have access to airspace and air travel to cross borders and they have to get in a dangerous boat, right? And and head out into the sea to try to, to move. So it's not that they're immobile, but they don't have that mobility capital to spend. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the process, Reconstruction after a disaster like the earthquake or like many of the hurricanes, there are some people with that high mobility capital who are able to sort of navigate the broken, you know, situation. They're able to get around and to figure out how to put things back together. Mm -hmm. And the other people who don't have that privilege or that, that capital, they're in a much worse situation. Mm -hmm. So even though you've both been hit by the earthquake or both experienced the hurricane, there are groups of people who are much more badly impacted by it. And that's because of those unequal mobility regimes, partly the ones that, that we, as I said, contain those people, um, for mm -hmm. example, in internally displaced people's camps, IDP camps, become mm -hmm. this marker of the people without mobility, the people who have to kind of wait for help yeah. to come. Yeah. And as the victims, it's because yeah. they weren't allowed to help themselves. Mm -hmm. And when all that um, mobile money, for example, was sent by people who wanted to donate to Haiti, why wasn't it then released to the, the, the victims of the earthquake, right? The people who needed the money, they could have received mobile remittances, but instead mm -hmm. it went to these aid organizations and the mm -hmm. aid organizations kind of controlled how those donations got spent. Mm -hmm. So, when I talk about sort of alternative forms of reconstruction, um, I draw on the notion from uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who wrote Black Reconstruction in America, which was about the post-Civil War period. There's like this vision of reconstructing the economic bases of society and how democracy itself works, which we could think of in post-disaster reconstruction. 
why, why do we just think it's like building, you know, um, paving roads or moving rubble or making temporary shelters? We could be using reconstruction to actually rebuild social justice and equality. Mm -hmm. uh, what is keno political power? So the word Kino political, you know, combines the, the root word kino, which means, you know, movement, um, and the word politics or political. And it's a way to make us think about how politics is about mobility and how mobilities are politically informed by what we call those mobility regimes. So, like, when you talk about mobility in the in a spatial sense, like, okay, let's move from point A to point B, that's not all it is, because how we move, uh, the means of movement, who can move, and who, who built that infrastructure, who decided where it would go, those are all political questions. And so any kind of movement or mobility is politically informed. At a more basic level, you can think about gender and racialization of people's bodies and sexualities and that as we move through the world that is politically informed by the power relations around gender and sex and race and ethnicity and not everybody has the same freedom of movement or the same experience of movement even if they're in the same space mm -hmm. so any kind of mobility is political it's governed by these power relations and that's what the kino political is about that political mobilization and social movements require us to be able to assemble to be able to gather together to be able to protest or march or things like that so politics itself is is mobile Mm -hmm. uh, there's a, a striking scene uh, you describe in your book about uh, during the, uh, uh, the the 2010 earthquake recovery in Haiti, where you and others are driving around in, I guess, air-conditioned SUVs or, or vehicles, mm -hmm. and other Haitians are in the back of these uh, uh, trucks exposed to the elements. It's hot outside. They're breathing in these diesel you know, exhaust from 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 these uh, pickup trucks. I guess mm -hmm. uh, you said it was full of contradictions and hypocrisy. Can you yep. just kind of flesh that out for us? I so that I mean, a lot of the book Island Futures was uh, not so much about Haitians and experiences from within um, a Haitian interpretation of their own experience, but it was about critically looking at the experience of those who arrived, whether as humanitarians, engineers, or researchers, like I was there as part of this NSF National Science Foundation research team. And this question, you know, that comes to mind, it should come to mind in any research, but it's particularly acute, given the post-earthquake situation, to ask yourself, you know, what am I doing here? And uh, how am I benefiting from this? How am I helping people? Like, why, why, why are we even here? And it, it became so obvious at that moment, that moment where you're in that air-conditioned, tinted window, you know, big vehicle, and you're going down the, the you know, the roadway, say it was um, I, Croix de Bouquet, Bouquet, where there was this long 
um, median in the road where people displaced by the earthquake had built these little shelters. Mm-hmm. And all the traffic is like coming by these little shelters. I mean, there's children there. There's people trying to, to live. And we're supposedly there to help. But we're just like driving by with nothing to offer. And that was when I was so aware of like myself, myself, like this, you know, person from afar looking out a window at the disaster. And that's what um, Jonathan Katz titled his book, um, you know, the, uh, what was it called? Sorry, the truck that, the truck that, the big truck that went by. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that, it's that realization of that moment of that experience when you're you're in the truck that went by. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you uh, you you compared. You said it's it's. You read that it's worth looking at uh, comparing the disaster in Haiti. I'm assuming you meant the 2010 earthquake, or in general, and the impact of Hurricane Katrina on on New Orleans. Uh, how so? Yeah. So Hurricane Katrina was, I think, a moment where. Uh, Americans, U.S. Americans, became really aware of the, first of all, the failure of our government to respond appropriately to an emergency, and also aware of the racialization of the unequal impact of that disaster. Um, and those those images of, you know, New Orleans when it was flooded and people on their roofs unable to get help and then all the people in the Superdome um, and just like the whole way that that unfolded, I think, taught us in, in the U.S. about the inequalities of disaster, uh, mm-hmm. of like a natural disaster is not the same for everybody and, and also how unprepared our country was to respond to that disaster. Um, the earthquake in Haiti also carried like similar lessons about the failure of the humanitarian response, of the international response, despite all the attention and all the like fundraising that was supposed to be happening and all the NGOs and all the, you know, people who came to there to aid Haiti in this moment of sort of tragic um, circumstances, it didn't reach the people who needed it the most. And it was so unequal and it was so dysfunctional in many ways that it was a real lesson, I think, for um, the, the so-called humanitarian and international community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of these days, when I read that, I, 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 I'm thinking later on, I have to post that on social media, find some kind of really, some pictures of, of you know, People from you know uh, who survived Katrina and the Haitians, you know, mm-hmm. and their disasters. Yeah, I bet we probably can't tell the difference. You know, which country it's from. Yeah, kind of, yeah. But you know what happened though? Also, was that the victims of Katrina who were forced to leave New Orleans? Um, they got upset when they were called refugees, and yeah. they said, "We're not refugees. We are American citizens." Right, mm-hmm. yeah. and that came out of a longer history of discrimination against Haitians as Mm -hmm. refugees and so-called boat people. And Mm -hmm. so there's a whole political dynamic there of, you know, what does the refugee mean in the United States? That's right. That's right. Uh, In your own country. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about water and power or water power. Uh, what's the water situation, the dynamics there in Haiti? I guess we can focus on, you know, post 
2010 earthquake, or if you want to bring it up to the present, you can as well too. Who controls it? Who has access to it? And how is it distributed or not? Yeah, so the reason my sort of research group were there in the first place was uh, I was with a group of engineers from Drexel University who were studying water and sanitation systems and how they could be um, rebuilt after the earthquake. And the approach they wanted to take was we, we went to um, Leogan and the idea was to find out from people there what they needed and what they wanted, right? So it was mm -hmm. a participatory engineering um, project. So we weren't mm -hmm. there to build anything or do anything. We were trying to like interview people and do surveys and talk to them about what they envisioned they needed. And what we, the first thing we found out was that the piped water system that used to run into the city had been broken back in um, like a, I think it was 2008 by a hurricane a few years earlier that had disrupted the, the input from the Momance River into the piped water system. And so people were actually depending on purchasing water or digging their own wells or drilling their own wells. And so, first of all, we were trying to get a sense of this landscape of water access. And what you had was wealthier people could afford to drill a deep well down to um, an aquifer deep underground that had clean water. And Haiti is actually very well watered. It's it has lots of underground springs and aquifers. Mm -hmm. um, because of all those mountains, the water kind of percolates down. Um, other poorer people had to get water more from the, from the sort of surface level, from rivers or um, what are called unconfined aquifers up near the surface. And uh, that is um, a sort of standpipe you might see, and people mm -hmm. like would gather around and get water there. Mm -hmm. And then other people had to purchase water because a lot of those standpipes, um, the water was polluted. The water that was coming from near the surface was polluted with bacteria. And so it all needs to be treated. Mm -hmm. to make it drinkable, potable, what we say. And so you could either treat it yourself at home, which a lot of people did using um, Clorox tabs, they're called, that you drop into the water to, to kill any impurities in it. Or there was a little like a factory that um, makes clean water in little plastic sachets and you could buy the sachets um, and that was like a common way of getting water. So that's so different you know, for people in the United States who, at least back in 2010, before the, you know, the Flint, Michigan water crisis, et cetera, we're not used to the idea that you have to buy all your water in, mm -hmm. you know, bottled form. People were used to public water systems. Mm -hmm. So, Haiti did not have a, a widely spread functioning public water system. And same goes with sewage. Um, and so a lot of sewage was just, it runs into, you know, these like ditches and, and um, channels and, and runs out basically to the sea. It's not, there's not sewage treatment plants. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people didn't have access to toilets either. So what we learned in, you know, the surrounding areas of Leogan that most people outside of the, you know, the, the city uh, practice what's called open defecation, which is, you know, outdoors. Mm -hmm. uh, like it sounds. And so there was a lot of um, things that had nothing to do with the, the earthquake. And so when, when 
groups came in to sort of respond to the earthquake, they had they needed to recognize that there was this was this the the world in which they were functioning in terms of water and sanitation, and that there were many many complex needs that were not just about um, rebuilding some water pipes. <laughs> So, so the post, the earthquake sort of just exacerbated these uneven resource access issues even more, made it even more extreme, right? And is that account for why? I mean, there are a lot of reasons for why it, you know, it just didn't. You just let me ask you this: from your point of view, do you think the 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 response? To the earthquake. I've heard some other scholars on this space say it was very important immediately to take care of the immediate needs, such as water, food, and shelter, right? Mm -hmm. But overall, looking back, the, the world's response, this transnational response to the 2010 earthquake, did it do more harm than good? Or did it leave yeah. things sort of in a neutral way? Yeah, that, I, I mean... In many ways, it did do harm, and I'll, and let me explain why. Because even even then, you know, I was there in March of 2010, right? The, the earthquake was in January. Even as early as March, some of the Haitian people that we interviewed said to us, "All the Blanc should go home, right? We we don't want you here," because it was already uh, at, like two months later. It was clear that what happens when you bring in all of these Blanc, these foreigners, um, it distorts what happens. It, it first of all, it changes the economy because if you're, you know, coming in and, and using, like I said, SUV rentals and you need a place to stay and you have to get food and, you know, you need your little setup and you need electricity and power, already that's feeding into a certain sector of the economy. And, it's not getting the aid necessarily to the people who need it the most. It's kind of enriching people who already have resources and power. Mm -hmm. And secondly, if you're, for example, trucking in free water, right? And water was needed. And so big water distribution sites were set up and the water was free. Well, first of all, you've disrupted the little water businesses that they're that, like, as I just described, water was being purchased before. And so, the whole economy of water, um, you know, cleaning and water filtration and, and water packaging and water sale and water delivery, well, you've completely thrown that out the window because now the water's free. Of course, people are going to take the free water. And then you create a situation where you also need to, um, what they called, exit from the water trucking strategy. So they found themselves, all these people were now reliant on that free water and they had no way to stop giving it out because if you stop, suddenly everybody's going to have no water. So it, in a way, it, it sets up thing, issues like that. And the other big problem was you had so many different um, aid organizations and they each have their own project like framework and their own project timeline and their own initiatives. So, you know, there's one group that, um, wants to like 
help rebuild your your um, roads. And so they come in and pave your roads. And then there's another group that wants to help build your um, sewage channels months later, and they dig up the roads in Leogun so that they can put in the sewage channels. And you're like, nobody coordinated this. Why did this happen backwards? Why would you pave the roads and then unpave the roads? It was like wow. absurdities like that were happening. Hmm. So so the response was, was kind of set up for the wedding, but not the marriage. <laughs> yeah. Big well, and showy, everybody shows up and then, yeah. Okay. And and yeah, and and what happens there too is everybody shows up, and they're speaking French or English, maybe wow. you know German. They're not speaking Creole, and so they're excluding right from the get go. They're excluding all the people who are not you know included in those those languages, um, and especially if if they're working in English and they don't they don't even have French, um, but you know, that there's a, there was a deep sense of um, exclusion of Haitians from decision-making about what was happening. So do you think the, uh, the disaster capitalists, have they learned their lessons from the 2010 earthquake of how to do this right? Or all subsequent disasters that you know, perhaps, uh, I, I, I know you've been keeping your eyes on these things. So, are you, were you are you hopeful that uh, they learned their lessons, or is this just kind of a what do they call that Groundhog Day kind of thing? You just keep repeating Ooh, the yeah. same response, the same response. Have you seen some awareness, at least from the regime, from the uh, disaster response regime? I, I mean, you do see there's some awareness in a sense, um, but. The need for constant, I think, constant learning is still there because one of the the things that that came out of um, the earthquake in Haiti was, for example, the use of um, open street maps and trying to like create open data systems and and share information and also ideas around like participation and stakeholder involvement and things like that. Sort of, mm-hmm. those are all buzzwords, you could mm-hmm. say, in the disaster management uh, industry. So there's things that, that they've tried to sort of learn from. Mm-hmm. They'll have, they can still have negative uh, repercussions sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, and I know that you probably didn't look into this, but I'm just wondering, like people who go into these type of industries, what are the universities teaching them? Are they teaching them your book? What they can learn from you. I mean, I mean I is, hope it, so. is, is it required reading? I mean, seriously, like, like, you know, for the next generation coming up, so they don't they don't keep repeating. Kind of like you know, in Wall Street, like every new generation of MBAs out of Harvard, right? They sort of yeah. do the same extracted things again, and the next thing you know, the whole market crashes. You know, yeah. Because there's no institutional memory. There's no generational memory to pass on. You know. So. I mean, I think that is the point of writing books like this is that it, it, you know, as I said, it's an academic book, but it means it's to be used in, in university courses and hopefully taught to students who, who think they want to, you know, become involved in, in disaster response and humanitarian aid. Um, I mean, you know, when I was a kid, uh, as a teenager, I wanted to work, I thought I wanted to work for the United Nations. And, you know, I, I thought international development or women in development were, were things I was interested in. Gradually, I read critical work on those, some of those, you know, areas and 
kind of mm-hmm. incorporated that into my thinking too. So hopefully, I think the next generation of students might might learn from this. And for for me, the really important thing to learn, like the all right, the big lesson is that there were organized groups and associations, organizations all across Haiti. Haiti was rich in a plethora of local, locally organized people. And the outside world simply did not see that. They were not aware of that. That You even had people like um, David Brooks wrote a piece in the New York Times yeah. about how Haiti had no civil society and, and like they, they weren't organized and that's why you know we needed to come to their rescue. And that's such a lie. I mean, that's just so wrong and false because one of the things our research group did is we um, we held a, a workshop for community organizations to get together and deliberate about what they wanted. And, you know, 76 people showed up representing 40 and more different organizations. Wow. And there was women's organizations, you know, Organisation de Femmes, Organisation um, de, de Jeunes, of young people. There was peasant organizations, many of those, um, there, you know, organization of Ungan. I mean, there was like so many organizations, you couldn't walk two feet without like tripping over an Uh organization. uh So why were those organizations not mobilized in the earthquake response and given funding and resources to help themselves? That's what was needed, not all of these outside responders, and you Mm -hmm. know, Sean Penn showing up and doing things. Yeah. Uh, is there a database of all these organizations? I mean, with all this tech that we have in this country, you know, like another disaster shows up. Who's, who's, do, who's been doing what for the last, you know, ge- for generations in Haiti? Like what organizations have been doing X, Y, and Z? Let's put research. Is there a database of that or? Yeah. yeah. I, not, you know, not, I, not that I know of, which is not to say that there is not one. I mean, I think what happens is there's a lot of, locality to locality information so mm-hmm. people um, especially in the diaspora who you know are connected to a certain locality <clears throat> they'll know the organizations there and so what we you know we always say go go to the people who know go to the people right. who mm-hmm. are working mm-hmm. with specific communities mm-hmm. and give um, give lo- you know give to small organizations locally funded places not mm-hmm. not to these big you know don't just mm-hmm. send your money to some big international organization. Right. Uh, can you talk about uh, the Samaritan's Purse water filtration system uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, issue or incident? Yeah, so this was um, a place uh, where we were, we were staying because there was housing available for our research team uh, on the outskirts of Leogan. And there was uh, a, a, a property there where internally displaced people, so-called IDPs, had uh, a camp set up. And this organization called Samaritan's Purse was one of the, you know, international humanitarian responders, and they wanted to bring water to these IDP camps. And so they had brought this pretty high-tech water filtration system um, and set it up at this location so that those people living in tents, you know, on a field could have access to clean water. And it's, you know, it uses reverse osmosis and it requires power. And so there's also, there's a diesel generator, right, that's running every time you're trying to purify this water. 
And so there we are staying at this place. We're drinking that water, first of all, and we're charging our laptops and our cell phones using power that's also from the diesel generator. Um, and, and so already there's like a weird power imbalance happening. But the place where we were staying was run by someone who had moved back to Haiti from Brooklyn, a Haitian, you know, diaspora uh, woman. And, you know, with very, very good intentions in some ways, she had plans for that place and that location. She was getting, you know, money from us, these international, you know, researchers and responders who were staying there. There was also an opportunity to create a women's health clinic, which had been planned for, you know, probably even before the earthquake, but even now more so there was a chance to sort of mobilize um, resources to create this health clinic. And to do that, she needed the, the camp of people to move off of the land because they were in the way of where the health clinic was supposed to go. And they were also like cutting trees down and stuff and using it for charcoal. And so she basically evicted the people from the camp. And, and in fact, this happened all over Haiti. Like many, many IDP camps were temporarily allowed to certain places to set up tents and then they were evicted. And what happened is the people were mad, of course, and they also wanted their water filtration system that Samaritan's Purse had put there. They decided the water was for them, not for her, and not for visiting researchers like us. And so they kind of came back in a, in a sort of mob type um, situation, somewhat, you know, threateningly, and they dismantled the Samaritan's Purse water filtration system, and they carted it down the road to like the new place where they were temporarily going to be. Um, and wow, that opened my eyes, first of all, to the power relations between Haitians in Haiti and Haitians from the diaspora, which is to say, while I'm, I was critical of the Blanc, of the foreigners, of the people like my team who were there, I also realized that you know, in the Haitian diaspora, there's also power relations, and we need yeah. to be a little bit critical of those and think about whose whose interests are being served and how mm -hmm. are people um, benefiting in a way, advantaging themselves through these post disaster situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this is a small small point. I don't know why it's stuck in my head, but uh, what happened to those plastic sachets of drinking water? There must have been like thousands and thousands of those. Uh, uh, how are they disposed of when they're no longer usable? Uh, yeah. Was there a process in place to recycle them or were, did they offer no. like incentives? No, no, no. They're, they're not recycled. They end up, um, you know, uh, either in landfill or in the, in the sort of ditches and gullies that run out into the ocean, basically. Wow. Okay. The uh, digital power. Um, so what, how many marine did I, I looked? I think probably about a month, uh, a couple of months ago. I think I saw maybe two or three marine cables, uh, one, two primaries after the earthquake. Did they put? Can you talk about that? Did you look into that about how, what what marine cables you know came into Haiti? I think one went in, one one solid ones in in Port-au-Prince somewhere, right? And are there two mores or? After the earthquake is redundant. Yeah. Uh, can you, you know talk what? a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I don't have the full um, 
info right in front of me, but there there was um, important um, developments happening around communications infrastructure, mm-hmm. and you had a number of things going on, which includes the the submarine cables that um, telecoms companies were investing in. Um, also, of course, like Digicel was a, a huge presence at at that time in 2010 um, in kind of. <clears throat> not just in Haiti, but in other Caribbean countries. And there were these, so there are these policies also that were being um, driven in a way by the World Bank and the IMF, that when they gave loans to many Caribbean countries, they required them to privatize their telecom companies, which had, you know, in many cases had been public. And so you had these situations where, you know, company, I believe it was Vietel from Vietnam, like, um, purchased like the public um, telecom system, and and then you have companies like Digicel arising, and then you have investments in these undersea cables. But so uh, there was a lot of transformations happening over this last decade in the telecommunications infrastructure across the region. Some of that investment is to serve um, companies, right? And like what we talked about off the offshore, so it serves the offshore companies. Um, but of course, it also, you know, to some extent serves the public and the sort of takeoff of mobile phone technology and particularly of phones as a way to transfer money has been really important in sort of keeping um, Haitians afloat during that, that period after the earthquake and, and, and during other natural disasters is like the remittances that flow in are very significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I found uh, the inclusion of, of, of uh, these voodoo passages at the end of each chapter fascinating. Why did you choose, I guess this is the geek side of me, why did you choose Dumbala Wedo for the digital power uh, uh, as the guiding Loa? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, yeah, so each chapter, um, you know, I have these different forms of power and Initially, as a sociologist, power in a very, you know, like structural, political, social sense. And so I talked about, as you said, kino political power, water power, aerial power um, of who, who had access to airspace and air visualization technologies and satellites, digital power about the sort of communication infrastructure, bordering power and sexual power are like the names of all the chapters. And each one I realized, and it was through this, um, this process of like uh, recognizing this connection to the loi that I realized each of those powers is associated with a loi. And digital power for me reminded me um, of, there's a lot of social research that's going on now and, and, and cultural geography that's about the material infrastructures of media and communication. Mm-hmm. And so media and communication are both um, how we connect uh, between the material and the spiritual world and to each other. And they're about these physical infrastructures of um, undersea cables and satellites. So, uh, you know, that that particular chapter, that loi, um, because Dambala uh, Wedo is like this um, kind of dual um, symbol of the serpent and the rainbow, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
that it reminded me of the the sort of the cables as these like serpents under the water mm-hmm. and then the satellite communications are like the rainbows in the sky mm-hmm. and there are these ways that we sort of connect through communication uh last to uh sexual power uh the oxfam yeah. scandal what oh. did that reveal to you about unequal sexual economies yeah so you know i'm sure a lot of your audience m- maybe had heard about this about how this um head of oxfam uk was uh uh punished got in trouble because he and some of his colleagues when they came to haiti you know on an oxfam you know mission or whatever they stayed in a hotel and they hired sex workers and they had what was described in the press as an orgy that is like multiple people together and Haitians were like just disgusted by this that the the so-called humanitarians are coming here on you know like some kind of sex tour and that they were kicked out of the country um, Oxfam UK was kicked out of the country and the thing is they weren't the only ones and so there's that story and then of course there was the horrific stories of the Sri Lankan peacekeeping uh force a- attached with uh, Manusta uh for the UN who had what was described as a child sex ring there there was like h- hundreds of children were being abused and passed around by these soldiers um for sexual purposes and that was even while it was being reported the UN was never like investigating it or admitting to it it took it took a really long time um and then more generally people know that there are these um relationships that took place between this peacekeeping soldiers and Haitian women and that there are the children um who who are called like the Manusta babies or something like that and um you know just there was a lot going on um that was really uh i don't know un- un- unpleasant unfair unequal sordid and it arises out of the you know the desperate need of of people for for monetary support for for food they said children were exchanging sex for for food and meals and it seemed so abusive to me that the people who were tasked with disaster response and help were the very ones who were engaging in that and and somehow thought that was okay. And of course that links to the whole critique of um sex tourism in the Caribbean generally and the way in which Haitian women um and children are, you know, trafficked into um Sosua in the Dominican Republic and other, you know, well-known sex tourism resorts. And so that whole economy of sexual exploitation does not go away after a disaster it actually gets reinforced and mm-hmm. to see that in action was really kind of grotesque and and so Haitian women's organizations have been you know mobilizing against this calling attention to this highlighting the needs of um women and children and yet they were not it was not a focus of the the disaster recovery response. So Dr. Scheller, any final thoughts? Um no, just there, there's like so much to talk about. It's been great talking to you. I love your questions. Um we could talk for another, you know, couple of hours, I'm sure, but I, I really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh what's next for you? Do you have anything else uh, you you you're, um, you're writing on? 
Yeah, I'm working on various things, but in particular, actually later today, um, I'm going to be presenting the very beginnings of a, a piece I'm trying to write about the Caracol, uh, you know, industrial park. And whoa, what mm. a story behind that and um, wow. and what's happened there. So that's wow. what I'll be working on next. Maybe I'll have you on next for that. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, hopefully, you know, you can indulge me again. And we can that would be great. Go, I would love to. Your, all right, thank you. Okay, thanks. Okay, Catch you have a good one. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R. <laughs>